I see that Furlow's bought himself a very fine bull. He should make a few cows happy. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Law. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We're at episode 161, back to Cole's choice. What are we talking about today? We are talking about My Brilliant Career from 1979, and that's directed by Gillian Armstrong, credited on this film as Gil Armstrong, and it's based on the novel of the same name by Miles Franklin. It stars Judy Davis, Sam Neill, Wendy Hughes, Robert Grubb, Aileen Britton, and Julia Blake, and it's about a free-spirited young woman in early 20th century Australia who dreams of becoming a famous writer while staking out her own hard-won independence. I learned a great figure of speech from this film. Tell me. She is considered by those who love her to be a larrikin. Have you heard this before? I hadn't before this movie either. That is an uncultured, rowdy, but good-hearted person, which is a station that I now aspire to. I think that's our dog Gibson, except without the good-hearted part. Yeah, those boys definitely have the rowdy bit down, for sure. And uncultured as well. My dad would call the dogs rude, crude, and uneven. (laughs) Yeah. And that is just one of the things, that little bit of vocabulary, that I love about this movie. And before we get into the movie proper, I wanted to talk about one of the other big things. I think one of the most fun experiences that is universal to all of us as movie lovers, that lightning bolt of knowing right away that you just saw what you know is going to be one of your favorite films always. And I just saw this for the first time last year, I think November or so at the end of last year. And I immediately knew that this was going on that all-time favorites list. It was galvanizing for me. And I know you probably have quite a few examples of that from your life. What are some of those? You and I together just watched one, and that's truly madly deeply. Mm. We're going to be talking about it over on the Patreon. I feel like these days I don't see quite as many of those, but in recent memory, I think Shoplifters goes to the very top of that list. But I have had a few that I think about, I need to bring those to our show right away. Dearest Sister was one of those. The Invisible Man. I chose that for my upcoming October selection because I was so struck by it. Well, for a long time, I have kept a letterbox list of my 100 favorite films. And it's kind of my desert island list if I had to characterize it some way. And I actually recently hit a point where it's grown above 100 for the first time because I have legitimately reached a point where taking anything off of it just was too painful. And it's handy too because, like you were saying about keeping track of when these things happen, I can kind of gauge how seldom it actually takes place that I run into a film like this. For instance, I only added two films to the list in 2020, this and then the Hungarian film Sindbad, which we will be doing for the show next year. In 2019, only one, Invention for Destruction. Prior to that, I have to go all the way back to 2015 when I saw Ken Russell's The Devils for the first time, and that immediately leapt onto the list. 
And it's hard for newer films to break into that list too, I've found. You mentioned Dearest Sister. That's a more recent film. Once Upon a Time in Anatolia and Take Shelter both made the list in 2011 and then Blue Ruin in 2013. But when I look at that whole list of 103 films, there are only 11 of them from the year 2000 or after. And I was also looking for a through line when I was going over that list. Do your selections for that type of thing, do you generally see a particular characteristic or a quality that they all seem to share? I think the word pain that you mentioned <laughs> earlier might be it. It seems like these stories that strike me are because they inspire something deep within me. And that's got to be a reservoir of pain. They strike me so profoundly. And with the few that I mentioned, the stories, the parts of the world, the filmmakers, those are things that I really wanted to express and talk about and bring to the show. And I'm sure you remember at this point, but The Invisible Man was a really difficult experience. We shared that one in mm -hmm. the theater. And it just struck me so viscerally that I felt like the context and the subject matter are just so important. I didn't want to let them go. I've also been there to see that happen with other films, something like Tarkovsky's Mirror, for example, which was such a profound and painful, it seemed like, experience for you in some ways. Would you put that on the list or is it a different thing? I think it's a little bit of a different thing. But in thinking about these shared film experiences, I would put Boyhood on that hmm. list, which we talked about that not long ago. And then maybe Amour, which I am not <laughs> quite ready to come back to. Well, I feel like mine are much more a case of, you know, it when you see it, I don't have an exact list or anything I can pinpoint. The only real criteria, it's similar to what you're saying, is that it generates a very specific feeling in me. And that feels different from something like festival euphoria. These are things that are always going to be on my list. It's a very different feeling. It's not something that you might reevaluate later and think, mm, maybe I didn't like that as much as I thought the first time. Two different feelings. I have noticed though that it's very rare that anything gets on the list because of technical aspects. They may have a distinct visual appeal, but it only gets on the list because it also very specifically addresses something in my personal aesthetic that I love that much. I think like you, it's almost always about the story and how it's told and how that fits in with the things that I value the most in the way I look at the world. Well, I totally get why my brilliant career galvanized you. And the other thing that I wanted to talk about to kind of set the table for this, we cannot say enough about what a watershed film this was for the Australian film industry. Gillian Armstrong was the first woman to direct a feature film in Australia in 46 years. Now in the 70s, they launched the Australian Film Development Corporation, which in turn then established the Australian Film and Television School, and she was a member of that school's inaugural graduating class. Others coming out of that program are Philip Noyce, who made one of my favorite movies, Newsfront, who I know made one of your favorites, Dead Calm. Peter Weir, obviously a huge name, Picnic at Hanging Rock, Gallipoli, The Cars That Ate Paris, The Last Wave. And then Bruce Beresford was in there too, Breaker Morant, and then even making American films that I love, like Tender Mercies. It really was a jumping off point for the Australian New Wave. As an analog, I guess, in terms of impact on the culture and the kind of films that were being made, Think New Hollywood, Altman, Coppola, Scorsese, that instrumental. And then while all this was happening with that new school, 
the Sydney Women's Film Group and Real Women Melbourne, they were calling for more women creators and women's stories. So it was a perfect storm for Gillian Armstrong to fill this void right here when this happens. What's kind of surprising to me, at least initially, is when I found out that Gillian Armstrong didn't create this project. She was hired for it, which there's nothing wrong with that, but it just seems like she and Judy Davis were born to do this story. And think about what a small number of contemporaries they had to compare themselves with. I'm talking around the world. It's true. And then when you look at contemporaries in Australia at the time, or then shortly after, most of those women still to this day are mainly known for shorter experimental films. Not a whole lot of features among them at the time. But this brings us to the film. Shall we get into it? Let's do it. Okay, so these things that we're talking about, they result in two of the qualities that really set this film apart for me right away. Women's voices, and then the Australianness of all of this. In terms of women's voices, the opening credits alone show a remarkable number of women in key positions, especially for what I imagine the climate is like in Australia in 1979. The screenwriter, the source novel, producer, associate producer, casting, production design, costume design, production supervisor, props, construction crew. Virtually every facet of the production has women involved, and a lot of them in very key positions. The influence of women cannot be overestimated, since you have writer, director, and lead that are really giving this an unmistakable stamp. I want to mention something related to the production crew. I want to say that they really wear these clothes. That's when you know that you have something right. We've talked about that a little bit before. It's not a costume, it's a wardrobe. And for me, that calls to mind what occurred to me right away. The use of natural light, capturing the time of day, and the use of color. That's in fabrics, that's landscapes, that's the irrepressible color of Judy Davis's hair, her freckles, against those duller and darker yellows and oranges and browns. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that palette of the landscape, because one of the other things that I am thinking about right away are the differences between our perceptions, or at least my perceptions, I don't know if you feel the same, of the American frontier versus the Australian frontier. I don't know if it's the same for you, but obviously being more well acquainted with American history, I see the American West as reaching a point where it was settled and developed. That narrative of taming the West, it eventually comes to a conclusion. And I don't know how accurate this is, but I think of Australia as 90% untamed. It's practically all frontier in my mind, still to this day even. So that imparts a very specific wild feeling. It's a feeling of unknown that really works as a great metaphor for her situation of facing and conquering her unknown. And then there's just a toughness that's implied by surviving that environment that I admire. At least partially, I think I must tie some of that to my oaky forebears and the Dust Bowl. Well, here's where I disagree with you a bit, because I don't have the same perception. Maybe that's because at work right now in the library, I've been working on these Texas time machine videos, and we just had our mystery night play. So I've been working on selections from around this time period and looking at photos, and it strikes me that the landscapes are pretty similar. The play was in old Round Rock. There are so many similarities. What I do think, though, 
is the same idea of extremely intense contrasts for both areas. So in America at the time, we have major metropolitan areas that are practically like different countries from the rest of America. I wonder how much that's different even now when I think about flyover country versus the coasts. Could be. And I think it's kind of the same for Australia, but with a slightly shorter history of metropolitan development. I mean, imagine that at the time, Sydney must have seemed like Mars in comparison to the rural station that she grew up on. Well, when we first meet her out here in this frontier, she at 16 is already completely contemptuous of the choices that are available to women in her time. But to me, she transcends that sort of temporal limitation in how we think about this. 1897 or 1997, there will always be those people that have two important things, an inkling of their own greatness, and more importantly, even the strength to forge that path. And I love this touch as introduction to the character when she even acknowledges that built-in arrogance that she has. She is proudly laying claim to that egotism. And I think the thing that's best about it, it is a very clever preemptive strike against critics calling out her own self-importance. She beat you to it. But the big question about all that, if she doesn't do it, who will? And then if we have any doubt as to how contentious it is for a young woman to declare herself this way, even the elements get in on the act with her committing this to paper, generating a huge dust storm. It just goes to show that her position that she's creating is so precarious because any sort of natural shift can keep her off balance. I think, though, the very most important statement that she makes really within the entire movie is asserting to her aunt at that moment that the idea that marriage makes us respectable. Hadn't worked for you. Nope. <laughs> so we know it's not true. And really any concept of there being a limited number of choices, marriage being one of them, it's because of what men and then the world at large have come to believe themselves and then tell us. If I had heard her say that when I was a young person, I think it would have blown my mind. And the statement still resonates. Well, it's a precarious position, absolutely. But I think she's so right to be so confident. It is almost unfair to be this innately forward-thinking, to be this educated, and most importantly, hungry for more. That's the big thing. In this backwater. She is multi-talented, obviously, but the stark reality is that where she is living, where she is growing up with her family, everyone has a job to do here, and very little of that is creative or intellectual. Yeah, there's no room for the humanities at the station. And then her mother attempts to volunteer her into servitude, to which her response is, God be damned. It's a bold curse. It's a very Larrikin thing to say. I feel so deeply this conversation that she has with her little sister, this I want to do great things, Gertie. She's butting up against the limits of this life and not settling. And I have felt this, obviously, to varying degrees throughout my life a lot lately, I have to say. Why doesn't everyone understand is the question that I'm basically left with. People lack vision to the point that they don't even know how to engage with her. Gertie's a child, so obviously that's a little understandable, but the adults do it as well. And Gertie's not off the hook either, you little lazy Gertie. <laughs> because the bigger question is how is the desire for more 
not just everyone's instinct. She is so alone in her inclinations that she feels sometimes like she might be the crazy one. But every time that she quiets that and then listens to her heart, she knows that she isn't. And I think Miles Franklin, she described this really perfectly as the misery of being born out of one's sphere. How much do you relate to that part of it? I bet you know what I'm going to say. I do and I don't. And let me explain why. Before that, though, what you said earlier strikes me. We talk about this, you and I, fairly often. I'm in these Facebook groups that are professionally related. And people constantly are posting these questions along the lines of, should I apply for this job? It says this and I have this, but I'm not sure. And why isn't the answer, of course, fuck it, do it. What's the worst thing anybody can say? No, move on. So clearly, some people do not have it inside themselves to strive for more or think that they should or could. And so that's where I do not relate to that sentiment. I had no concept of spheres when I was growing up. I didn't feel like there was anything that was off limits to me personally. Maybe that's my egotism. But then I remember when I became aware of spheres on a conceptual level. So I don't know about you. Do you ever think back to how and why curriculum was presented to you in school? Because I do. And let me give you an example. When I moved to Idaho for high school, it was like night and day from what I was used to. We had this huge semester-long survey of the concept of spheres within gender roles and American history. Did you have anything like that? Nothing like that. It was all about how women's spheres, as it was learned at the time, shaped politics and religion and vice versa. I still don't really understand why this thing was taught to me. And here's where context comes in. I'm learning about this, we're writing papers about it, we're talking about it, and it is all within the context of Mormonism, hmm. which is the culture that I was surrounded with. And I am telling you, I don't think I've ever been so angry <laughs> in my life <laughs> than to go to history class every day and absorb this information and have nowhere to go with it. I don't know. I think I might have something comparable. Imagine being native growing up, learning Oklahoma history where none of that was taught to us. Or, for example, the Tulsa race riots were never once mentioned. Good point. It just really makes me want to build a time machine and go back to the dawn of man in order to remove the concept of gender and class. But one thing before I move off of this topic, there is a perfect visual representation of this. This is one of my favorite frames in the film. The three of them, Sibylla, Harry, his mother, separated by those porticos when they're on the porch. I love that. A reprieve does come, though, actually. She is sent to live with her grandmother instead of being farmed out as a servant. And it's a great relief to her. And also, I think it's an opportunity, they think, to culture her up a little. And all I can think with that is, essentially, you can have music in your heart but the quality of the instrument, it also makes a difference. So what do you make of this metaphor of the pianos at her disposal? The value of the raw versus the refined or simply of gaining more experience? It's certainly on the nose, but who cares? To me, it's pretty cool that she's provided this tool that shows how much work she has to put into it to make it work. 
That's the first one. She can't make it sing. Then she's got this opportunity for this better instrument to express herself, but she still has to work even harder to then be heard. To me, it's a little bit like big fish, little pond, and then big fish, big pond. They each have their own restrictions. You said it extremely well. I don't know that I could say it any better, except to add that a personal thing for me, I really empathize with her in the fact that in her life, especially her earliest development, all the sounds she's ever known, dissonance is a given. That's an element that I love. So she actually has, like you say, to learn how to use that, to wield it, to make it work for what she's trying to say, to make it part of her voice. It's perfect. More and more, I know why this was such a perfect <laughs> film for you. Well, she takes the trip to her grandmother's, and when she arrives, there's a tiny little character beat that's one of my favorites. Fixing her hat when she arrives at her grandmother's. I love that detail. We watch her try to acclimate to what's happening here. She is clearly out of her depth with these swells. She's looking at them as far as clues to behavior. But all it does is prove that she's always at her best when she just reverts to her own instincts. She can only put on these affectations for so long. She's too naturally inclined to climb trees, to sing body songs, to tell dirty jokes. Her very existence is basically a finger in the eye to a system whose entire purpose, it seems like, is keeping people like her in line. And you really get to see how hers is a perfect balance, I feel like, of doing those things to push boundaries and then simply not being able to help it. Some of it is specifically defiant, but then some of it is just natural. It is simply who she is. Do you see those as equal forces within her, one fighting for supremacy over the other? Or do you react to or sympathize more with one of those facets of her personality than the other? Well, I think I'm in a little bit of a disagreement with you. Again, I didn't see the situation as quite so dire. So going back to what you first started saying, I really didn't see her affectations as affectations. I think she embraces the opportunity to have some better things, to have better surroundings, and her family in general are quite happy to have her. She likes to play on the nicer piano. She likes the beautiful clothes. It's fun. It doesn't quite at this point get to that kind of critical mass where she has to laugh off what everyone's saying and then try to find solitary spaces where she can more fully express herself. Because as I see it, she doesn't have any problem with expressing herself when other people are around. It's not boundaries in that same sense. She just wants what she wants when she wants it, and you know I sympathize with that. But when it does start to get a little bit more dire, a little more poignant, you know that I'm feeling that internally. That idea of people telling you if you looked a certain way, that that would be better. You would be better and therefore more pleasing. I went through that. So I love everything about her. Me too. And I'll just say it over and over again. It will get more specific as we go. But we actually have one of those moments coming up here that really cements that for me. And actually, it's so affecting. It becomes two moments the way it plays out here. One, the first part of it, she doesn't recognize her youthful mother in a photo when she's visiting her grandmother. She's only known her as a woman whose circumstances and obligations have stripped away the beauty that she used to have. And that's difficult enough to process probably, but then you have more that goes with that. 
questions of legacy, what is expected of women, the work there is to be done. Someone has to make those sacrifices. Is it selfish to not want that life, to think that you're meant for greater things? Well, it is definitely treated here as selfish to not want to turn into a milk cow in the most literal sense. Now, I had a little bit of a different feeling with that photo. I was thinking about how she reacts to it and then what happens a little bit later. She's in this position to be assessed and compared to her mother. I think it's just another reminder, you see it in her face, of how beautiful she'll never be. I think you're absolutely right that she feels that. You do see that flicker across her face. But I think the second part of this, which is the other thing that I love about it, the thing that happens in response to her seeing this, it comes from a completely different place that diffuses all of that in the moment. And here's what I mean. You're right. There is this question of beauty and being a disappointment in that regard. But then Aunt Helen says, no more looking in the mirror. And I feel like that's motivated by pragmatic, pure reasons, not pity or because she thinks she's ugly, but I think very specifically to discourage useless vanity and comparison. Those things get you nowhere. I'm going to give you another read on it, <laughs> okay. possibly. I thought it was a little bit more about keeping Sevilla away from that transformative process that she's starting to undergo, even though we know she really isn't. The pupa doesn't watch itself throughout the chrysalis stage, basically. You're not supposed to take the bandages off from plastic surgery too soon because you're not ready yet. So I'm excited to hear how other people read those moments, too. Now, you brought this up for a minute earlier. The production design is so excellent, especially when she gets to her grandmother's house here. Yes. The picture frames, the wallpaper, the fabrics, the lamps. The interiors are really pretty sumptuous to be sitting in such an unforgiving landscape. And I love this metaphor. It's such an imposition of order on the wildness that I perceive. It's a nice parallel for the position that Sibylla finds herself in. And it shows you what a damn drag the Victorian era was on so many fronts. But then you also get butterflies and beautiful birds and colors. Now, to make a comparison to something that we've discussed previously, not that long ago on the show, this is my rough and rowdy, a room with a view. I feel like it's half room with a view, half Pippi Longstocking. So obviously you can see why I love it so much. Made for you. You've got the off-kilter piano. That's shades of Lucy Honeychurch. You've got the rain because Sibylla finds herself in a deluge. There's the consequences of that wild behavior, quote unquote. The music transports her in a similar way. You mentioned, though, that you thought of other correlations. Yeah, because actually, A Room with a View never occurred to me until you said it, strangely enough, because that's my movie. It does make kind of sense. She's almost like Lucy in reverse sometimes. For me, though, from the very first moment, all I could think about was Jane Austen. That's Jane Austen's actual life, and then her heroines. Even though these time periods are separated by almost a hundred years, they're quite similar. Have you read much about Jane Austen? You mean in terms of her personal life? Right. No. Okay, well, let me give you a couple of examples. She made really similar personal choices as Sibylla does. She went through majorly reduced circumstances, but her personal sadness has meant that the whole world now has these amazing stories and they continue to inspire us. She chose no marriage. 
She had offers. She turned them down. And like her heroines, we so often see these social spheres discussed and how they can define lives. She's got a lot of women who struggle to make their own choices in the face of financial realities or within their own limitations or within their own strengths. I then thought a lot about Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. This seems like Joe's decision all over again. And then I had a couple of left field okay. correlations. Tell me what you think. I first thought from the very beginning, because I think of the colors and the time period, Daughters of the Dust for hmm. a second, how women really stand out and the price of all of that color and all of that effort. And then when we talk about practical matters, coal miner's daughter. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Think about Appalachia as a frontier and these quote-unquote choices that Loretta made as a very young woman and then what she made of her life. Because until the pill, was there really a choice? Do you think I'm wildly off no, base with any of those? not at all. I think those are all interesting angles to consider for sure. Daughters of the Dust especially because it correlates to exactly that thing I was saying at the beginning about the distinct stamp of women's authorial voices. And timely that you mention the pill, because here comes Sam Neill looking all good. Ooh la la. The chase is immediately on. It's so funny. Even little things that I sort of forget until the next time I come back to this, like when he lifts her out of the tree the first time, and he is somewhat intentionally holding her skirt up a little bit while she struggles with that. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> now, obviously, it's a bit of a reversal from the usual in that Judy Davis is framed as the mercurial perpetual motion engine of the proceedings. And then Sam Neill, he's often photographed with these lingering shots. Uh, gracias. Okay, well then this answers the question I'm about to ask you. Because I know you had a specific reaction when this sort of thing happened in a room with a view as far as male beauty on display. I'll ask anyway, do you like when the pendulum swings back this way to the male characters being the object of that gaze, or do you feel like you need it to serve a certain function in the story, or is it just a matter of being human, enjoying seeing those things? Okay, are you Cole Rowling <laughs> asking if I need nude, semi-nude, or lovingly photographed men to serve a story function? Well, I'm asking more so that you can explain your position to the listener. Well, the say. answer is a uh, da doy. I don't. <laughs> bring it on. Speaking of Jane Austen, that whole getting wet thing that's straight out of Pride and Prejudice. If it were me, I would have had Sam Neill maybe go grab Frank and say, come and have a bathe, and then the movie would have been complete. Because the Australian son loves Sam Neill, and so do I. Yeah, I think I started down the same road when we were talking about A Room with a View. One of the oldest functions in the world of art is to capture and celebrate the beauty of the human form. And I think that it's ridiculous to deny that urge or tendency. It obviously doesn't belong in every story, but it also doesn't cheapen things when it makes absolute sense. Because I could look at Judy Davis's hair flowing all day long. Yeah, it's captivating. And then the way she just explodes into a room during this. You hear the phrase force of nature thrown around a bit, but it's on the money here. You already mentioned her freckles. They are like the most beautiful constellation I've ever seen. She's so wild and unkempt. Her hair should have its own credit, I feel like. Absolutely. I do know that you're a freckle person, so yeah. I knew you were going to love this. And I love the fact, character-wise, 
maybe even counterintuitively, that it's not fearlessness that drives her. We do see her suffer doubt and struggle with insecurity. And the beautiful and powerful thing about her is that she feels those things, has that fear, and then bursts forth like this anyway. That is true bravery. My brilliant career, colon, feel the fear and do it anyway, <laughs> right? Well, you know personally me that I dislike characters who I think have unearned confidence. It's something that really bothers me. So if to my mind they're not smart enough, funny enough, cute enough, whatever, to justify their egos and how they act out, it really bothers me. But she is so self-aware and brilliant and charming. I love her bravery. I love her will. You mentioned this already too. A lot is made of her appearance. Frank, when he makes his initial proposal of marriage to her, he leads with, looks aren't everything. I am so glad she threw his stupid flowers in the pond. Because I think she is beautiful. I don't get this discussion at all. She is so arresting. Part of my reaction to this film is how perfectly it's made, but I freely admit that at least some of it is because I fall in love with her right away. I can feel what Sam Neill's character is feeling, so I can relate to it in that way. I mean, seriously, who are the rest of these idiots looking at? She's the cutest thing on the planet. She can smirk at me anytime. And it's not just beauty, either. It's everything. The allure of someone so fiery and unconventional. Her family says of her, we don't know what she'll do next. Exactly! That is precisely the appealing part. It's just wanting to be around someone so unique and powerful and assured. They all pale in comparison to her. The only reason that you wouldn't want to be around her all the time is because you too are one of these dim-witted pearl clutchers, basically. Even knowing that she could never be hemmed in by traditional relationship standards, it would be infinitely worth it to just be close to all the exciting things that she is, even just for a little while. I love when Harry's mother puts that idea into words, how arresting she is, how everyone knows it. And maybe no one realizes how pale the world can be until somebody like this comes around. Yeah, I don't often feel this, but uh, jealous much? Well, let's talk about this idea that she is presented with and struggles with, this notion of love marriage versus friendship marriage. I know that you and I both have a lot of feelings and ideas about this. It is said that her mother and her aunt both married for love. And I think there's a touching moment, again, just a flash across her face right there. I think she internally is acknowledging, however briefly, this idea that she may be more like her mother than she wants to admit. Did you get that? I did, because I think the sexual impulse can't be denied here. And that's frankly the most obvious result of her mother's choice. And then the question in her heart, the root of all this, it's really such a valid one. How about no marriage versus a love marriage or a friendship marriage? Marriage is not the only option. She will not be limited by this conventional expectation. And they also don't seem to be able to conceive of a love and friendship marriage simultaneously, which I think would be the ideal. Well, you and I married for property, so <laughs> who are we to talk? And then the capper of this whole discussion later, this idea that loneliness is a terrible price to pay for independence, I feel like she must get so tired of trying to explain to them what a false dichotomy this is, that it is not impossible. But 
is it though? Okay. Here's what I want to talk to you about. And maybe it's the Jane Austen thing. And maybe it's another E.M. Forrester. Morris is quite on my mind here. Because these people at this point have not seen another example, let alone more than one, of any single woman being able to survive on her own without a family fortune. Because very early on, and this again is kind of straight out of Jane Austen, it is stated that she is a burden on her family. That's what unmarried women were. So if your literal survival must be dependent on marriage, is no marriage truly an option that anyone could even conceive of? She could. Yes. But can you blame them for maybe not believing that a 16-year-old could actually make that way in the world outside of prostitution, for example? I guess I can't blame them in the sense that they have no imagination. That's a valid point, too. I'm definitely not trying to be on the side of pearl clutchers. You just don't get it, Mom. Stay out of my room. (laughs) It's true. It's tough to talk pragmatism within this world and within this character. Well, fortunately for my side of the argument, she will not be broken by these sometimes cruel old crones. She knows her value better than anyone else, though they do still try, often under the guise of doing what they think is best for her. You brought up the birds earlier. What do you make here of this aviary caged birds metaphor with all the beauty and ideas of possession, wildness versus captivity? I think that they have to know at some level that they are also captives. I'm thinking about Aunt Helen. There's that huge bombshell that she's not actually a widow. Her husband just left. And so she is truly a captive. She cannot remarry. She cannot be single again or reveal what's happened, at least in this world. But here's the why I do love this extended family, especially Aunt Helen. I don't feel that there's any cruelty in them, it just seems like they're trying to impart these hard facts in a gentle way as they understand them. Sort of, don't make the mistakes that I did, and I was in an even better position than you. I don't know. I might be swayed if it was any other face except Judy Davis's, but the way she demonstrates her defiance and how clearly they just don't get her She really is an equal contributor here, along with Franklin and Armstrong. This is not the indelible experience it is without her. I think what you see in that very first moment that you see her face, you know you have seen a performer who is supremely intelligent and just gifted. Yeah. Even more incredible when you think about the fact that this is only her second time on film. Another aspect of the filmmaking I want to point out, I love this choice that we constantly see her face in close-up when we're seeing her true emotion. And the moment when we don't see her response to Frank giving her the flowers except to throw them, we don't see her face there because she's being inauthentic to his face and has to wait for him to leave so she can be authentic. I love that. Again, I think I know the answer to this, but let me see. Do you feel similarly to me in that the falling in love arc of this, it feels so incremental and logical and real We see little things like he trusts her to drive the carriage. They legitimately really light up when they see each other. You've got that bright red parasol on the boat. That's a super big sexy signpost, I feel like. And then there's that suggestive pillow fight, which, importantly, 
she initiates that's basically foreplay and sex all rolled into one. They fall panting, exhausted after this takes place. And then great stuff like the fact that he's not above making a fool out of himself for her. Now, I don't feel like her enjoyment that we very visibly see on her face is a betrayal of her underlying desire for independence. There's always something, most often in her face, that lets you know that this is not going to be a standard period romance. How do you feel about her pursuit of him? Do you feel like it's contradictory? Is it similar to Lucy Honeychurch's muddle? I think muddle is a good word because we see her literally rock the boat and then <laughs> run away from it. I love this so much because during this process, it's like she grows up by 10 years or more. She finally realizes that she has to have an honest conversation with him. That sort of what you tell me sometimes that I've got the whole thing in my head, but I'm only giving you part of it. Because before that, I think she almost imagines she's in a Bronte sisters novel and she's fairly immature, though appropriately immature for her age. Because she's striking out against him. She doesn't know yet how to access and then express those sexual feelings that I was mentioning earlier. And she wants to have that full life. And I do think that she understands that she's being a bit unfair. She wants to kiss him. She wants what she wants because it's going to be fun and feel good. But she also wants him to understand that there are limits and he maybe will not be able to give her the life that she wants. But they're not quite there yet. And he's not a robot. He's reacting naturally and honestly. And they're both super cool. You want them to succeed on whatever terms they have. Well, I'm glad you've mentioned Jane Austen and the Bronte sisters, because one of the overarching themes of this for me also is how Miles Franklin, she was devoted to developing a uniquely Australian form of literature. And I feel like, based on this alone, she is an unparalleled success. And then she had her doubts too. It's interesting to see the parallels there. She had the book pulled from publication after it became too popular for comfort, and then it didn't cycle around again for publication until after her death. Full disclosure here, I actually thought before I came into it that the film and the book were autobiographies. Though now we know, yes, she certainly pulled elements from her life and her character for it. I had this paperback forever because of the movie. I still haven't read it, unfortunately. I need to get to it. Well, touching on a thing that you just said earlier about how he is reacting to her honesty in real time, he's going away and he promises to come see her as soon as he gets back, but he fails to keep that promise. And in just one more move that sets this character apart, she holds him to her standards and isn't going to play these games. I think he's intrigued and excited by that fact. Likely none of these other coquettes have been so demanding. This is different. This is something I've never seen before. But, like you were referencing as well, her inexperience shows through too painfully sometimes. And one of the things that I often like to do is imagine where these characters are going to go after the movie is over, how their life continues on. I love thinking about the fact that this is the first time she is feeling any of this. And it feels like a privilege to get to see her go through it. And then on top of that, I also like to think about how this will color her every experience that follows. And not just color. I think a better word is enrich her every experience. Uh-oh. Is this a coming-of-age film? <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. 
It absolutely is. And it's one that will be one of my favorites forever. So again, I may just have to rethink my stance on that, having seen a lot of bad ones early on and now having experienced so many great ones. But she's definitely coming into her own here because we have arrived at the evening of this ball, which then ends up in the barn where she's really with what I feel like are her people. It's after that piano is used to kind of put her in her place. She's put to work for everyone else's enjoyment. I like that the house won't contain her. She escapes that. And she forces him to come to where she is. When this happens, he finally proposes to her and he becomes aggressive with her. And in the process, she whips him with a riding crop across his face. Now, I've seen Gillian Armstrong's characters described as women that don't often say they're sorry, but she apologizes for this. Do you think that's merited here? How does it make you feel about her character that she does this? A moment after this, there's a beautiful shot outside where we see Harry in profile so we can see what she's done to him. It's really effectively used. But yes, she should apologize. This is what I was trying to express earlier. If she demands honesty and a different way of being, she has to be honest herself. She has to express her true feelings and the difficulties that surround it because they can't be on equal footing otherwise. He can't make an assumption and she can't let him continue with that assumption. This is what I was waiting for. This and the scene in the morning that follows, those are my two favorites. Yeah, I think you're exactly right about that too. I feel the same. She should apologize. I feel like it really demonstrates her character that she's obviously passionate but not to the point of the exclusion of reason. So obviously it appeals to me. And in this scene the next morning, it's so touching. She asks for time and her self-assessment is so solid. Her request is so reasonable. And finally, what we've all been waiting for, the kiss. I feel like it is absolutely brilliant to withhold it until now. Just like I made you wait. <laughs> Don't remind me. But yeah, she had to be ready for it, and now she is. Not the same for me. <laughs> but anyway, you dirty dog, where are we going next? <laughs> well, just when everything seems to be working out, she's sent away again to settle a debt of her father's. It's just one more sobering reminder that for all of her fire and all the sense that she makes that her life can still be arranged for her. And this life as a governess is really punishment. And we've heard other characters refer to this idea just previously. Do you see value in the humbling aspect of this work? Because she definitely has to think of someone besides herself. Well, you're right. And it's quite demoralizing because it's not her punishment. It's her father's. And it's what he's inflicted on their family. We realize she has to take the weight of other people, which is a hard pill to swallow sometimes. And I really think the more and more... I explore these characters and the writers behind them. I think less of the single person and more about the impact that they have. Because I love to think about those children that she teaches. They're never going to forget the tools that she gave them, even when it was really difficult for her. It's quite a beautiful transcendent thing. But I definitely don't mean to glamorize suffering. Mm -hmm. I think it's great in that... It's a perfect encapsulation of what I think is the one piece of advice that she's given that I like throughout the film. Try and do good where you are. That's something that all of us could take to heart. 
And the way she does it, it feels noble rather than being a capitulation. I think something interesting comes out of it too, but maybe that's me transferring. But I think that she also maybe understands a little bit of what her mother tried to do. I think her mother tried to do the same thing. Because you can make the lives of other people miserable when you're miserable, or you don't have to. You can't always create the best circumstances, but you can still write where you are, which I think is an important lesson for her to learn. Well, fortunately, she never loses sight of that. She is eventually freed of that obligation. She returns home. Harry finally comes to see her, hoping to pick up where they left off with her saying, I need this time and then I will marry you. I think with the important caveat, if you still need me, if I can be of help to you, which is really a beautiful thing to express. But she hasn't quite gotten there still. What it comes down to, this thing that she says, I cannot lose myself in someone else's life when I have not yet lived my own. And this thing that I need to do, I've got to do it now and I've got to do it alone. And his response to this, it's just a dead giveaway. We can go into this city as often as you like. We see that he still doesn't get it. And it's heartbreaking because it's not exactly his fault. Because I do believe his heart to be true and that he would do whatever he could to make her happy, but he's just not equipped. It's that old Bill Hicks joke of showing a dog a card trick. We're just not speaking the same language. Because he brings up again what she said about, I do need you. You can help me. But I think maybe she's again learned from this time and from the example of her mother, I kind of need to take that language out of this whole agreement. And really, he's in a sphere as much as she is, as much as anyone is. I do think that all in all, this is a pretty revolutionary concept of doing it alone. How do you, Cole, respond to that? Do you think in general we should follow that idea more as humans? Absolutely. Because her eventual refusal, it's an intentional opposition to what audiences of all kinds have been groomed to expect for as long as there have been stories. And I'm so intrigued about what it says about us, that we are so relentlessly taught to want it that way, or else it adds up to poor storytelling. Just as an example, you can look at the marketing of this film, betraying its own message. You look at the original posters for it, it either shows them in an E.M. Forster type embrace, or it shows the playful pillow fight. I don't think until the Criterion cover of the new Blu-ray did anyone get it right where it's just her defiant face with that windswept hair alone. So there's something that I want to talk about here just a little bit more. This idea, I think, is presented as life or death when she's making her statement of purpose. What I have to do. Why I can't go with you. So do you really think that marriage would be basically a life-ending prospect at that time? For him, for her, for both of them? Could she figure out a way to do it with him? And I go back and forth quite a bit on this, but I love that regardless of what that answer is, she is honest in her own shortcomings within the relationship. She says, I would destroy you. And I believe her. Not because she wants to, but because this is just the way that it is. It would be a life-ending prospect, I think, but in two distinctly different paths. For him... It wouldn't be immediate. 
he would be carrying on as if this is right, this is proper, this is everything I want. And only when she couldn't take it anymore and had to abdicate would then he feel absolute ruin. And he would never recover from this because you don't get that close to something that luminous and not be affected by it for the rest of your life. While his would be normal, 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 immediate drop off, hers would be that constant everyday grading, just a slight incline building, building, building until there was an explosion, I feel like. Death by inches, death by a thousand cuts until she just can't take it anymore. Yeah, I, I go back and forth, like I said, but it's hard for me to think that someone so powerful couldn't make it work, but I do think it would be life ending for her too. One of the intriguing parts about being that powerful is that it's just innate. You may not have control over that yourself. You didn't decide to be that. You just are that. I think you need that on a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, Cole Rowling's movie for sure. Well, let me ask you one last question here. Do you feel like this final shot is ambiguous in any way? Is that gate where she is standing a threshold or containment? You know, I am really not sure. I didn't, with either of those readings, think of it as a bad thing because she has made such a difference. I read it more than anything as that kind of final Australian touch. I agree with you on the Australian part, but I have a definite take on this. I feel like this is nothing but a threshold. Got it. Not the containment. No, not at all. To me, it reads precisely as part of what Franklin was trying to achieve with Australia. And in that last shot, she feels eternally Australian. And not in any negative way. Not trapped there, but just as much a part of the landscape as one of those wild dust storms. Her integrity and independence are completely intact, and so I never have a single doubt that she will succeed completely on her own terms. Sounds good to me. And just as one final note, I don't know if you felt the same way as well, but I wish... This went on and on. I could follow her adventures practically indefinitely. It just reminds me how spectacular Judy Davis is. Did you see her Judy Garland? Nope. She is really fantastic in that. So is that your recommendation? It is not. I was debating whether to talk about another kind of pivotal moment in Australian period film, at least for me, and another delightful Sam Neill performance, and that's Sirens. But instead... I picked Impromptu, which was a watershed movie for me. And Carrie Nielsen, if you're listening, it was for you too. Impromptu is from 1991, directed by James Lapine, who, by the way, is also a big Stephen Sondheim collaborator, which you will understand when I mention some of the cast list. It was written by his wife, Sarah Kernichen, and it stars Judy Davis, Hugh Grant, Julian Sands, Bernadette Peters, Mandy Patinkin, Emma Thompson. I could go on and mm. on. In essence, it's about how the writer Georges Saint, who was played by Judy Davis, falls in love with and pursues the reluctant Frédéric Chopin, and all the lives and expectations and the world in which they live in the 1830s with all the other musicians and writers. So Sarah Kernichen talked about the concept as how do complicated people find a simple way of loving? It's playful and ebullient, and it upends gender roles, as Georges Saint did, and it's very fun. Everyone in it is great, and that's because Lapine specifically picked actors that he had worked with in the musical theater world who could bring the characters to life. 
and who doesn't want to see Judy Davis in a suit riding a horse and winking at Chopin. So what did you pick? I picked The Getting of Wisdom from 1976, and that's directed by Bruce Beresford, and it stars Susanna Fowle, Sigrid Thornton, Carrie Armstrong, Terrence Donovan, and Barry Humphreys. And it, too, is about a rebellious young woman in Australia at the turn of the 20th century. In this particular case, it's about her experiences going to boarding school and how she deals with navigating that while figuring out who she is and what she wants. Now, a number of things connected to my brilliant career. It's made around the same time by one of Gillian Armstrong's cohorts in the film and television school. It's based on a celebrated source novel around the same time. There are some similar themes in terms of the struggle of independence versus societal pressures. The character expresses herself through her piano playing. It sort of completes that turn-of-the-century Australian trifecta of my brilliant career in Picnic at Hanging Rock, though I will say this is probably the most conventional of the three. It doesn't have the same impact to me as the other two, but it's a nice counterpart in terms of just understanding one more layer of what it was like to be a young woman in that time and that place. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Impromptu and The Getting of Wisdom. And that brings us to the end of episode 161. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. Come for vibes, stay for truly madly deeply, <laughs> but sorry to interrupt. That's okay. If you would like to just get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore casts. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Andy Wolverton, Keith Rich, Joshua Wilson, James Greer, Spencer Seams, and Will Hughes. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. You can find our show on Audible, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, just about anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 